the death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see... We still, them. to a large extent, live in the interregnum between, between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Inside Critical Theory brings you this Diet Soap interview. John Robinson has taught computing and contextual analysis at North Lindsay College in North Lincolnshire for the past 15 years. His writing mainly takes in music, technology, and media analysis, and he is the author of the upcoming book, Famous for 15 People, The Songs of Moments. Thank you very much. That's fair. An artist you describe as one of the most prolific and talented indie songwriters of the last 40 years. I'm going to just start out by asking you how you justify that assessment and how you came to discover him and, and admire his work. Okay. I mean, the first, I, th I would think that the first time I heard him was because um, there was a little burst of activity in terms of uh, people re-recording Jacques Brel songs around, I would say, the late 80s, early 90s. And uh, there was a time when Mark Almond had a couple in the charts and Momus had recorded a EP of Burl songs and I just heard them, or one of them, I should say, called Nicky, which is his interpretation of Jackie, mm -hmm. on the radio one night and uh, just found it very amusing and loved the sort of... Uh, the textures that he put into it. And I started to want to listen to more of his stuff in the early nineties, not that easy to get hold of his stuff. So it happened that it was a couple of years later, I happened across a, a vinyl copy of his singles compilation and uh, just got hooked on the sort of contrast between his very beautiful guitar picking and sort of um, very beautiful melodies that he wove into his songs and the, Contrast between that and very bitter, twisted, cynical lyrics that he had, the very strange views he had about um, if you if you took his character at face value, the very strange sort of worldview that he had, which appealed to me very much because I always love things that are contrast, you mm -hmm. know, where you've got you've got you've got this mix, and uh, started looking into his back catalogue from there, and then just collected everything from there really, and uh, started contacting him. I would say mid-90s, I think, uh, perhaps, <laughs> mm -hmm. and uh, started writing about him a few years ago. Now, so, in terms of his prolific nature, he's done pretty much an album a year since becoming MoMA, since be, since 1985, sometimes two, you know, with very few gaps. Also, he's worked in um, writing film soundtracks. He's, uh, for the last 10 years, been writing fiction and non-fiction books, um, and in terms of being important or influential, you, if you listen to his earlier work, you can definitely hear some of that echoed in the Britpop that came through in the 90s. Definitely someone like Jarvis Cocker had listened to Momus and indeed was friends with him and other artists of that ilk. You can see that in his precise use of language, he's followed from 
people in the 80s like Neil Tennant, but he, he, he's brought a whole new academic vigour to what he does, and it's a strange way to put it, but there's a philosophy behind everything he does, which is very, um, I think, very influential and very important. And, and just his song, the, the content and um, structure and how well his songs work is, is just brilliant, always has been. And he's well, very innovative. Very, very few people know about him. Very few people write about him. Um, I think this would be the first book about him. He's written his own memoirs, of course. So you mentioned at the start that you uh, found his persona and the juxtaposition between the, the twisted mind of the persona he adopted uh, in contrast to the, the, the music to be appealing but I'm interested to, to know what the persona precisely is for Nick Curry. Who is he? Yeah, I mean, Nick Curry is a Scot. You know, he was born in Scotland. If you don't have Nick Curry, he's one thing. He's, he's a, a writer, an intellectual, uh, and a songwriter. Momus was adopted by him because the name is obviously taken from... Greek and Roman mythology as a, modern, a god of mockery and trickery. And I think that is the idea in his persona. His persona is that of someone who is an aesthete, is amoral, who lives for their own gratification, but would not describe themselves as evil. I, I don't think his character comes across as evil at all. He's He's always singing and writing and and just thinking about the the reasons why people behave as they do and the sort of selfish nature of people. Mm -hmm. And without, so... Without offering any kind of... Without moralising about them. Mm -hmm. okay. So I'll give an example. I mean, his, his, there's a song on one of his albums called The Guitar Lesson, which is about a guitar teacher who is abusing his 12-year-old pupil. And it's it's a very still piece of music. He's describing what's happening very much as if it's a painting. I mean, he's inspired to write the song by a painting showing a guitar lesson where the abuse is actually the way around. It's a, it's a, a, a woman and a boy. But he, he in his song, obviously, it's, it's a man singing about teaching a young girl and what happens. But there's no, it's sung very matter-of-factly, so there's no moral opinion offered. It's just described, and obviously our feelings listening to something like that are repulsion, but he's describing or trying to describe <laughs> the beauty that he sees in the composition of what's happening, if that makes sense. You know, mm -hmm. the, the events which are unfolding, although they're terrible, have their own beauty. So there's another song on the same album uh, called Vocabulary, which is about someone who takes someone home from a party. They have a, he's not interested in this girl, but they have a crash. And as she's lying dying, he starts to feel sexually attracted to her. So there's a kind of necrophilia sort of thing going on. He's only attracted to her when he's lost her, you know, and... Um, mm -hmm. Again, he describes it in very beautiful terms. The music is very beautiful, very um, 
you know, involves very beautiful sweeps of keyboard and strings. I mean, he's, it's not, he describes a beauty behind the ugliness that might be happening in a scenario. Well, I and can understand. It does what he said. What's his character like? His character is that which looks behind what normally people see. So in these songs, it's not the character of Momus. It's um, that's the abusive guitar teacher, but rather that character is observing. Very much a character. Oh no, no! In the, in the guitar lesson, it is. It is the guitar teacher who is singing. Mm-hmm. But it's very much a character he's taking on. So one of the criticisms of Momus, obviously, is he was debauched. I think people at the time sometimes thought maybe he was actually this person, you know, describing something that happened. But it's, mm-hmm. it's entirely a character that he inhabits. And it's a different character in each song. So his songs are very narrative in structure, and they'll tell stories where he's becoming in the song the main character or sometimes a narrator it changes from song to song to us mm-hmm. and yeah. what do you think is uh the aim of nick curry in creating songs where these horrors are presented uh without moral judgment and in fact as ascetic objects um i mean they're not celebrations of the horror quite right i think he um i think in different songs he maybe has different intentions so when he came to write the hippopotamomus album so there was a song on there called i ate a girl right up where he's he's talking it from a point of view of someone who's literally eaten a girl it's not cannibalism it's not it's nothing to do with killing or murdering anyone or eating them. His intention is, in that specific case, is to talk about a sort of philosophical idea that we need to confront the dirty part of us, right? So we need to confront the part of us that enjoys smut and disgust and, and the bowels of someone by eating them. And, and the song's a sort of literal interpretation of that. It's mm-hmm. as if someone's decided to literally interpret it. And in something like the guitar lesson, he just wants to show that even in the strangest scenario, there is something, there must be a reason behind why someone acts the way they do. Mm-hmm. There must be some kind of beauty. Mm-hmm. He's looking for motivation, the motivation of people in different scenarios in those songs. It must be said, not all his, his music is about disgust and horror, but there's also a great deal of humour and it's a great, um, certainly since the 90s to now, his songs tend to be uh, moved more towards a, it's quite a bit of political content and there's also quite a lot of, I'd say, stream of consciousness sort of work going on, especially mm-hmm. more recently. Mm-hmm. So don't go thinking everything is is about this this disgusting character. <laughs> yeah. So the character of Momus has changed over Definitely time. He's adapted and changed. Pretty much every album presents some kind of fresh perspective on it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you were to listen to his fir- the first album, Circus Maximus, is, is a series. It's supposed to be a song cycle of songs based on the Old Testament. Okay, mm-hmm. so he's singing from the point of view of someone perhaps who's brought up in a Scottish 
um, you know, Christian household and is is sort of kicking against that. Perhaps they're singing songs about how Sodom must uh, sorry about how Lot after escaping Sodom must have slept with his daughters. You know, and about contrasting, okay, he was saved from the evil that was Sodom, but then he was instructed by God to basically repopulate the earth through incest. You know, and he, he taught, he's singing about the sort of contradictions that come up there. Mm-hmm. And then, and that album is very much an acoustic singer-songwriter folk-based sort of idiom. Then, well, let me let me ask you a a, a question yeah, about yeah. the early days of Nick Curry. Um, <clears throat> he was in a band called the Happy Family. Yes, and um, it's a post-punk band. Post-punk band with members who were in um, the Edinburgh-based band Joseph K. Mm-hmm. Um, so, sort of new wave, yeah, post-punk. And uh, just to remind everyone, what is post-punk as opposed to new wave? Oh, what's post-punk as opposed to new wave? I'd say new wave. Post-punk is a movement that takes the ideology of punk, which is freedom expression. A refusal to adherence to certain rules and kind of applies some rules to it. That's how I've understood it. Okay, applies some kind of framework to the music which comes through it and also applied a more political ideology. Mm-hmm. Okay, whereas I'd say new wave, when I think new wave in Britain, I think it means different things in Britain and America. In Britain, it kind of applies to more to the technology that was applied. It kind of apply, it implies use of synthesizers and electronic instrumentation more, I think, than it does in America. Would you think? Mm-hmm. I, I think of Elvis Costello as a new wave, early. Yeah. Costello as new wave. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would think of that as more as both. I'm, yeah, I, the, I suppose yeah, by mentioning yeah. Elvis Costello, I'm exposing myself as being very basic. But, <laughs> but, but, um, I wasn't uh, quite there though, you know. I was I was very young, four. <laughs> yeah, well, I was um, I was born in 1970, yeah. so I guess I was around. But uh, it's uh, old, isn't it? Thinking back, uh, I mean, old Momus, he was um, 12 when the Happy Family album. Sorry, I was 12 when the Happy Family album came out, so I wouldn't have known anything about that at the time. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't. yeah. And it, you, you, all this stuff um, fermented when you were still at school, and you right? I guess it. so. We're, so we're about the same age, you and I. Then you were. Yes, you, I'm seventy three. You were born in seventy three. Born in yeah. seventy three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so his his Happy Family album came out in what eighty one? The first couple of albums? Oh, uh, yeah. So it was an EP in eighty one, I think. Oh, yes. It was an EP in 81, and the album came out in 82. Were they charting? Did they do well? Oh, no, 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 <laughs> no. I think it came out to a round of uh, very, very vague applause. No, no, it didn't get charted. I think it had a few gigs. Um, there was no... The person on the... The man on the street, so to speak, which is ironic, that's the name of the thing. The man on the street wouldn't have had a clue. No, not at all. Um, and the, the individual members of that went on to do different things, worked again with Edwin Collins um, and worked again with other bands. And of course, and, went on um, Orange Juice. Who produced the record? I mean, what, what label were they on? That was on 4AD and um, oh, I can't remember the name of the producer. They produced it themselves. Most of the moments' work is self-produced. 
He's uh-huh. only ever had uh, a producer for The Poison Boyfriend, which is Julian Stanton. And was that label known for for putting out sort of underground yeah, records, or was it a pro- profitable company? Oh, it's profitable, but very much indie underground yeah, right. stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, and so... Uh, after that, he went on to L Records uh, for the early Momus material. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, do you think album. that Nick Curry, uh, as Momus, is still post-punk? Does he just stay post-punk, or or how would you label the his music now? Currently, or over time, he would be post-punk. I mean, he's as he went through the eighties. I'd say he started off sort of in a folk, what I would call a folk idiom, anyway, and then moved into a more something very much styled on the late 80s pop scene in the UK. So it's the hairstyle of the devil single and the Don't Stop the Night album are very much in the style of the Pet Shop Boys, a bit of influence from hip hop and dance music at the time, house music. Um, His 90s output doesn't really touch what we'd call Britpop. It, It moved more towards glitch pop and his own style which he called analog baroque mm-hmm. um which is kind of a mixture of harpsichords and baroque sounds with hip-hop and house influences mm-hmm. yeah okay and then after that he's in when you get past that there's an influence from what was called glitch pop okay you know mm-hmm. so it's very much cut up and um cut up and re-edited tracks that he's got. And then in the last 10, 15 years, he's done everything pretty much on his own with Garage Band. Mm-hmm. So putting tracks together from samples from his own instrumentation and then creating the lyrics over that. And the style's very much, I would say, influenced by Japanese music and by Japanese folk music especially. And... Uh, some German and French influence from older songs. So it's very much kind of kind of what he'd call folk music concrete. So um, has he made his living from his music and art for the most part? Uh, um, yeah, he's, he's, he, in the 90s, his music became quite popular in Japan. Mm-hmm. So he was able to go out there and write songs for other people. So he wrote songs for um, Japanese artists, Kahimi Karie, mm-hmm. The Poison Girlfriend, who'd named herself after his album, or in Boyfriend, mm-hmm. and had uh, quite reasonable success there, including a couple of top 10 singles that were written by him, okay, for other people. Mm-hmm. And he seems to have made quite a bit of money from that, through that period of his life. Um, during the period since then, he's made some money from uh, talks, from offering what he calls unreliable narration and tours of museum exhibitions mm-hmm. and art exhibitions, and through probably through some to some extent through his music. But I can't imagine the last few albums have made that much money. Yeah, so um, I was. I'm curious to know. Uh, you want to know where he makes his money? 
Yeah, <laughs> well, uh, how how you go from being a post punk in a post punk band to being uh, such a big influence, and also I guess maybe the soundtracks uh, must have you mentioned them that that must be how well, you get those I mean, feels. He's worked on soundtracks that there was a, a film by Dirk Jammer called Blue that he worked on. He worked on a film called Below Down, which wasn't which gave him enough money to finance a move to New York for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was in New York for for like two years, just uh, just before to just after nine eleven. All right. Well, I want to ask about the controversies that he's been involved in. You yeah. mentioned an, an album uh, that was controversial because it had the Michelin Man on on the cover. I think that you yeah. It's an it album called in um nineteen ninety. There was an album called Hippopotamus. Uh, which is a good title, but it, it, he made the decision because there was a song on there called Pump It Up, which was um, about the Michelin Man. And, and the idea was the Michelin Man in this is kind of a, a pump-up sex doll that Josephine Baker is using. Um, it, it's a bit convoluted, I think, but he decided to actually have the Michelin Man on the cover and the song was called Michelin Man, and this was released. Michelin clearly found out about it, and I can only, I can't imagine what the conversation was like at their headquarters. But they decided <laughs> in the end that they were going to threaten. Didn't take, but threatened, you know, legal action to. At that time, he was with Creation Records, you see, and mm-hmm. this, this, if it had gone full-blown, could have been enough money to take down Croatian records. It could have been quite a large suit. So they agreed to uh, to withdraw the record, to destroy it, mm-hmm. and reissue it without the song and without the cover. So there's actually uh, two different versions of that CD, one with mm-hmm. the old cover with Michelin Man on it, one with without, one with the offending song on and one without, although they seem to have come to an agreement about it now because you can now get that song. If you go but, down the album now, that song is on there, but the cover, no. And I don't, I do understand that it is literally the logo, you know, which, <laughs> right, now, right. You know, which is on a song associated with a sex doll, basically. And on an album with what he, at the time sort of described as sex songs for children, which I think sometimes he deliberately courted a bit of controversy with things. Yeah, that, that sounds like it. That could um, have been a quite, a, quite a problematic thing for creation, and we didn't want them taken down before they launched Oasis on the World, or did we? <laughs> so um, uh, have you ever heard of a band called Negative Land? Yes. Yeah, so I'm just reminded of their controversy with their album, the the, the numeral, uh, the letter U and the numeral two, uh, but I won't go down that rabbit hole. Um, well, it's that, and you know, we had a similar thing with the KLF and the, <laughs> the appropriation of everything from ABBA to Kylie Minogue a couple of years previous to that had got them in a lot of trouble as well, right? You know, we, we, it's always good to see. <laughs> so, what, what do you think is holding? Um, this is a, a question I'm asking. Um, coming to my mind now that i didn't write down in advance but why hasn't nicholas curry or momos been canceled given how how he courts controversy in these ways i think it's 
very much under the radar. And I think his songs now don't have the same sort of controversy, controversy in them as explicitly as they used to. They tend to be more, uh, the songs now tend to be more, what's the word? Like I said, more stream of consciousness. They don't tend to be contained sort of subject matter that's going to get him locked up in Twitter or Facebook prison as such. He does sing a bit about how people are censored for saying things, but I think he himself flies under the radar. There's not enough people know about him for him to get in any trouble. Yeah. Really not a good idea to promote him with a book, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> He so, uh, but, but he's worth people knowing about him. If only you know during the lockdown, he wrote this album called Vivid, which was a beautiful set of songs about isolation and about lockdown and about the pain of being away from people you love and and nothing controversial in there. Just just you know, an album people should have. Well, you're friends with him now. I mean, tell me about that. How I'm how did you just? I'm friends with him on Facebook. I've not met him, and I'm not. I'm not. You know, is that a good idea? You don't think it's a good idea to meet him? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> um, but, you know, he he's agreed to and helped with some of the uh, book and and some of the blog entries I've made about him, and he's corrected things I've said. But well, you know, I've got something wrong or. Or something, or he's got something wrong because sometimes you go by what he's written on his website, and he said, "Well, actually, that's wrong." <laughs> do, do you think we could get him onto this onto this channel? If in, I'm in absolutely this... certain that he'd speak to. He, he, he's probably in a far better place not... to talk about his work than I am. I'm not sure I'd want to speak to him one on one alone. You know, I need you there to help me, but <laughs> but. <laughs> but <laughs> um, uh, I mean, maybe he's not I like would. the one. On, he's not like the guitar lesson. Trust me. <laughs> I'm not worried about that. Actually, I'm more just about being aware enough of his work in the context to ask good questions. So we should do it together. But but I also think, maybe I the think, other thing too. I think he would definitely do it. Okay. So what about this? Um, the other controversy. You didn't. Well, we'll, we'll go to the other controversy. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> um, you know, he also. Around 1998, I, I did mention before something called Analog Baroque. He came up with this idea of mm -hmm. um, basically creating, there was a couple of things really. One, he wanted to create a sort of, he was very inspired by um, the electronic versions of Baroque and classical music that he'd heard on uh, films like A Clockwork Orange. Mm -hmm. Okay, so he was very interested in that. That, that would be Wendy that. Carlos that did uh, those? Well, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, he was very inspired by that. And so he came up with this idea of one sort of creating what he'd call squibs, short Baroque style songs, which dealt mm. with a, an event that had happened in his life or were a description of someone and were just short, funny comic things that he'd do and move on to. And he wanted to mix Baroque instrumentation with sort of trip hop hip hop style you know mm -hmm. which is a momus type thing to do so the album uh the little red song book uh you know named after the little red song book um was full of his very short songs which are in a block style but with electronic instrumentation and a little 
descriptions of people or events. And one of them, because he was very much a fan of the work of Walter Carlos, as was when Walter Carlos wrote that soundtrack. Mm. Uh, he wanted to write a song about that person. Obviously, Walter Carlos had changed gender to Wendy Carlos mm -hmm. before they wrote, say, Tron's soundtrack. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so there's a song on Little Red Songbook, or was a song on there called Walter Carlos. Mm. Now, now that's not a, that's not acceptable because that is called dead naming. Well, it wouldn't have been called that at the time. <laughs> right, right. Right. If, if it was just that, I don't think there'd have been a problem. The problem mm. is that the song was about the science fictional concept of Wendy Carlos going back in time and meeting Walter Carlos. Oh. Mm. And and falling in love, right? Is that well, the, I wouldn't the, say falling in love, but you know. <laughs> well, that's a euphemism here. But, <laughs> um, so <sighs> basically, Wendy Carlos didn't like it. And the thing is, it was intended as a tribute, it wasn't intended in a horrific way at all. Concept of dead naming didn't exist in 1998. It's not there's no this was a song about someone he, this person admired. Mm-hmm. And and the so Wendy decided to sue, and this was suing Le Grand Magistery, the label that was putting the album out in America for twenty-five million dollars, hmm. which is quite excessive, I think, given it's a song. You know. um, but yeah, so again, again, <laughs> had to destroy all copies of the album and and remove a song and release a different version of it. Um, but he did now, do, you, do you think that an actual trial Wendy, this time? Do you think Wendy would have won if they'd gone to court? Do you think there was a ground? Yeah, they settled out of court, but was it started? Um, would Wendy have won? I don't know enough about libel law to really tell you. <laughs> Is there anything really libelous in that? It's a, con it's a conceptual idea. I don't think in. In the States, I don't think there's much would... damage to someone's person, um, to someone's reputation from something that didn't happen that's been um, suggested in a song. I don't, I don't think so. No, I, I, don't. I, I don't know. I don't know if it won or not. I don't, I don't think, think it. Certainly, I don't think it. It would have happened. Well, in the that much money. Um, I don't think so. But, but they settled. To, it led to Momus writing a song called Welcome to My Show Trial, which is very good if you seek it mm. out, um, about what happened in court. Oh, about which he can't talk. One of the, <laughs> one of the agreements of the uh, settlement was that he can't talk about it. We but he could, make, he, could, he could make a song about the feeling of it all. But he, he made a song about how he feels about it, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, described by Grant Morrison as one of his favourite moment songs. Grant Morrison of Batman. <laughs> okay. Right. So, um, well, let, tell me a little bit about how you. I mean, the, the name of your book is famous for fifteen people, but yeah. you are spending. You spent years now reviewing and writing about uh, moments and Nick Curry uh, on a blog that has a following and i'm imagining that there are more than 15 people who are reading it right? well, this is a good thing about this book uh, one thing i think we can definitely be sure is, is anyone who is interested in who could possibly be interested in buying it knows it exists <laughs> that's good <laughs> I, mean, I think 
Um, if you put Mobus and Book into any search engine, it's definitely there. So, you know. Right, right. Um, how many people are reading your blog, roughly? A um, couple of hundred. Okay. Definitely. And, I mean, more than that, well, you know. Okay. I also put it on Facebook and Twitter, so. Not yeah. worried, so. And, uh, and you find that community of people who are interested in Mobus' work to be uh, rewarding people, enough to, to write for? People who are interested in Momus are very interested in Momus. Yeah, it's mm. one of those, it's one of those situations where if you no know, people are enthusiastic about a, this particular artist are very enthusiastic about them. Mm -hmm. It's like a secret thing club, which we would rather people knew about. That's obviously. good. Okay, and yeah. um, and now Nick found. You had already been talking to him before you started writing for the blog, but did oh, you yeah. become more more interested more in your in in what you were doing after he discovered your blog, or did he discover that on his own, or did you share it with him? He found it on his own. I wasn't really promoting it. I, I just started it. He found it when he just started. Before it was really properly edited, <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. shame really, but you know. Um, I think he's he's quite flattered by the idea that someone write a blog about him. And and the book probably is flattering to him as well. Not always. <laughs> but he's flattered by the <laughs> it's, it's I would imagine. Him. Yeah. If I don't like some he's not written not every song he's written is brilliant, and where it's not very good, I do say so. Right. Rather than missteps. Um I was thinking that if and you told me that he would be all right with this, um I was thinking we could put some some of his music into this interview when I edit it together. Would that be? Do you think that'd be all right? Yeah, I mean, what he said was short clips would probably be fine. Um, if you put a long clip, probably it'll get caught on Twitter or not Twitter, YouTube. Mm -hmm. It probably will send some kind of stop thing. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Short clips should be fine. I don't see why we didn't. He has right. no issue with it. Right, and. Um, I don't think he owns the copyright to all of the stuff from what he's. I think he owns all. I think he's okay with everything from the eighties, the nineties. When I was writing, when I said, "Well, we need permission for lyric reproduction stuff like that," he said some of the nineties stuff is owned by Sony. So, okay, you know, we'll just, see what happens. Yeah. Well, what if you were to recommend like a few a few songs to people who have not encountered moments before? Where would you tell people to begin to explore okay, his? Okay, so um, I Want You But I Don't Need You is a good one to listen to. That's one that's stuck in my head. Um, that's the one. Not least because it's one of the most viewed of his songs on YouTube because there's a cover by Amanda Palmer, which had a lot of views. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it's very, very, it's very catchy, easy to listen to, sticks in your head conceptually. Good idea mm -hmm. and simple. You should listen to The Hairstyle of the Devil, which is his biggest, his nearest hit, <laughs> shall we say, got mm -hmm. into the top 100 in England. Mm -hmm. It was Creation Records' first top 100 record. Is <laughs> that, you mm -hmm. know, um, and is a very good example of, just sort of encapsulates the contrast between cynicism and pop that pervades his work mm -hmm. uh, you need to listen to all the album that's called tender pervert but there's a there's a song on there called bishonen 
which is a perfect piece of narrative song like sort of storytelling and illustrates how he can put a beautiful minimalistic backing to something that's a quite dark tale and isn't mm. too dark <laughs> you know it's it's not horrific okay um you should also listen to the guitar lesson just to understand just how dark he can get mm -hmm. that's called the guitar lesson um but more recently, you need to listen to the Vivid album. Uh, there's a song on there called September I particularly think is lovely, okay, which is just about hope. It was during lockdown and he was talking about, talking about September when things would be better again, which we were told they would be. <laughs> you know? Um, mm -hmm. I think for me... I love a song called Palm Def Top, which is on the album Oscar Tennis Champion. So Palm Def Top is, again, a beautiful, minimalistic piece of music about death, about AIDS, about, you know, people passing. There is some beautiful stuff that he's written, as well as the more horrendous sort of themed stuff. It's so as far as the the book goes for people who aren't that familiar with momus um is there a reason why they should pick up the book is there is there uh, is there something you can learn about the this period in, in in music history or this kind of music from reading this book and if so yeah, please say um, there is and if so what is it well this music Stretches from 1982 to 1995. So you learn quite a lot about British music industry during the 80s and 90s just from the sort of stories that go with the production of each album. You mm. learn quite a bit about what it was like to be a musician in the 80s and 90s in that sort of era in Britain. You learn quite a bit about... And quite a bit, I think one of the themes that goes through it, if there are themes that go through it, there's a theme about censorship. So there's an argument in there continually about, is it okay to sing about these sorts of things? Can it be funny? And should it be published? And if it is, should it be censored? And, and there's a conversation in there about that that goes on all the time, where I'm mm. clearly on the side of, <clears throat> I'm on the side of not cancelling people, mm -hmm. you know, um, I don't think it's ultimately very helpful. And, you know, it's quite a funny story. I think right. if, if, if anyone, people are going to get anything from it, it, this is not. A lot of books about music can get a little bit um, dry. This is quite, you know, quite amusing. You know, when I was coming up, coming of age in the 90s, you know, I turned 21 in, in, in 1992, uh, I was born late in 1970. Um, what was big uh, at the time was a kind of a do-it-yourself aesthetic. The zine culture was pretty big, especially in the Pacific Northwest, probably, uh, of the United States. Um, there was a feeling that punk was coming back in grunge music, you know, um, and... Uh, I actually had come out of a, uh, creative writing program in Florida. I dropped out of college, but it had gone to through a bit of a creative writing program in Florida. Um, and, uh, was struck by the fact that my, my professor, the, the, the head of this, um, 
creative writing program had was brought into a, a trial, an obscenity trial in Florida for a zine artist named, who was doing a, a zine called Boiled Angel. And they had decided to uh, take away his pen. Like the, the result of the trial was he was not allowed to draw even for himself. He was no longer allowed to create art at all. Um, and my instructor had been uh, the, the witness for the prosecution in this uh, zine trial. And I thought at, at the time, I thought anybody who was a serious artist would never have been a witness for the prosecution in that trial. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, but now I don't know. I think there might be a lot of writers and artists and musicians and comedians and who would be quick to line up to be the prosecution and, and, and that kind of, uh, I, I can't believe why anyone would argue that someone should not be allowed to create any kind of art. And because when you say that, people immediately go for an extreme argument well, against it. Boiled Angel was an extreme zine. There was all sorts of depictions yeah. of all sorts of obscenities uh, and, you know, the worst, whatever you can imagine. It was probably drawn in a cartoonish way by this, this guy. But uh, <laughs> anyway... Thing is, the argument, and so what? (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. Right, right. You know, um, no one's got a right not to be offended. That's that's something that people say often, and it's true. Right, you don't have a right not to be offended. Uh, There's a difference between offense. Well, there's a difference between offense and personal attack. That's that's different. Should we say? Right, right. But do you feel that the that the music scene and the culture has lost uh, the kind of a free speech absolutism that came with the do-it-yourself and the punk aesthetic uh, way back? Or? See, it's the odd thing, isn't it? In theory, with well, said moments does most of this stuff on Garage Band. In theory, anyone can make anything they want at home. Mm-hmm. You can make any film you want at home. You can make any music you want at home you don't even need the instruments you just you need a one of these things mm-hmm. <laughs> sounding older sounds so old one of these things one of these newfangled things uh, i call it computers i think you know um, <laughs> yeah. it's not about making things it's about being able to distribute what you have made to as many people as possible my concern is that the channels of distribution will be controlled more than that individuals will be stopped from making anything in particular it's Mm -hmm. you know we need to be able to get things out through youtube through through the internet and Mm -hmm. the more that social media platforms are politically forced to self-censor the less people will be free to share art Mm -hmm. Art that upsets people when that's the point of art that is one of them anyway. It's up, it can be to uplift people. It can be to upset can people. people. Yeah, absolutely. Make people think. It can make people, well, I don't think you make people think by just telling them what they already believe. Yeah, that's true. So, um, you know, it's just people would immediately say, well, so is it all right to do Nazi art? Then also, they'll, they'll immediately come up with some extreme thing where, where oh, no, that should be censored but no one can ever really tell me why. Right. Right. Well, listen, um, 
I got, we're coming up here on 40, 45 minutes. Uh, is there anything I didn't ask you that you wish that I had that, that we'd covered? Oh, you know, perfectly well. I'll think that after you've finished. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, you're going to come back and you're going to come back with. I've known this thing several times. When you look back after you're dead, you'll regret what you didn't do, not what you did. Right, right, <laughs> that's right, right. If, if you could sum up his songwriting, probably that's it. Yeah. Well, some of the things that his characters do, you probably shouldn't do. <laughs> oh, I'm sure that it's most of the things that his characters do, you probably shouldn't do. Um, but uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure, and uh, I have I'm really actually looking forward to in the months to come uh, uh, discovering the works of I, Nick Curry for I myself. Think you should, think, yeah, 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 yeah. You should, you should listen to some more. There's so many more. If, if yeah. you read my blog, I mean, obviously, I've only got up to two thousand and one. I was still 20 years adrift. <laughs> 20 years from now, I might have caught up. I don't know. It takes so long to write them. These blog entries and, you know, the chapters in this book are thousands of words long. I've probably written more about these these albums and people have written about, I don't know. Were you about to say these bloody albums? Did you almost say bloody? Albums, yeah. <laughs> I did have a period. I've had a period of time where I didn't write any of the blog because, yes, I was a bit momus out. There does come a point where you have to say, I need to listen to something else. 